It's the 21st of July, 2015, and this is episode 232. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Hey everybody, Adam B. Levine here. Today we've got two segments on this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Last week I sat down with the CEO of Block Verify to talk about using blockchains to reinvent supply chain management and eliminate counterfeit products from the places that are most impacted by them. But first, Stephanie and I are talking about the recent Terminator movie, Skynet, and the Internet of Things. Enjoy the show. Did you see the new Terminator movie? I did, and I actually watched the other Terminator movies as well, just for like a refresher. And the new one was really interesting because, you know, there's this concept of Skynet. The idea of the Terminator movies is that there's a war between man and machine in the future and like robots become self-aware and they form this network of machines that oppresses the humans and kills most of them off or leaves them for labor. And then there's a resistance that the humans are running against the machines to try to take back power and get out from under their thumb. This involves time travel. And so the humans and the machines are sending people from the future into the past to try to kill off the leader of the resistance before he's even born. So that was like the first couple of Terminator movies. You know, those were great, but the self-aware machines, that's called Skynet in the movies. It was really interesting in the new Terminator movie how Skynet was almost portrayed as like, call it whatever you want, Google, Facebook, or even some of these blockchain technologies that want to put everything on the blockchain. Skynet was this thing where everything is connected. It's basically the Internet of Things where everything's connected. All the machines can talk to each other. One of the characters in the movie describes it as like, oh, it's great. My phone will talk to my computer, will talk to my car, will talk to my refrigerator and toaster. And uh, <laughs> everything is connected. An emergent property of that connection is this consciousness, this AI consciousness that is Skynet and can decide things and is self-aware and is a self-aware AI. And it becomes really dangerous because then it wants to start killing off the humans. <laughs> And so that's that's like the whole plot of the movie. And it just got it really got me thinking the reaction of people in the movie to the coming of Genesis, which was is basically Skynet. It, Genesis was this is this program that lets everything be interconnected. And there's like a countdown to it being launched. And people are so excited about it. They're pre-ordering Genesis. They're like counting down these clocks until it gets ready to launch. Little do they know that when it launches, Skynet goes into full force and it's going to start blowing them up and taking over the world. And people are just cheering it on because they have no idea. And it just uh, reminds me a lot of people's attitudes toward the Internet of Things, toward uh, certain technologies where they may not be thinking about the scary potential aspects of everything being interconnected and or everything being on a blockchain. So, yeah, that was a long winded way of saying that I was thinking a lot about blockchain technology during the movie and some potential, you know, just cautions of of putting everything on the blockchain and using it to track everything. And of course, it it matters who has the power, who has the control. As with any technology, it could be a double edged sword used for good, evil, some anything in between. 
But I think we do have to just be aware of that and be cautious about it. I remember there was a debate a while back on Let's Talk Bitcoin over a year ago, maybe like a year and a half ago, where it was some people from Ethereum and BitShares and MasterCoin. People in the audience were asking questions. Well, is this just Skynet? (laughs) And people laughed, but it's a serious question that you have to think of when, when we're talking about the Internet of Things or blockchains controlling stuff in the real world, doors and locks and who knows what else. Movie was definitely food for thought. <laughs> I don't want to get subjugated by robots. And <laughs> if that means not putting everything <laughs> on the blockchain, I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> well, I think you said it, though. You know, it's about who controls it, right? It's about who has the power. And I think that one of the things that's nice about blockchains, at least blockchains as we know them today, is that really it is the individual who has the power. We saw a move towards web wallets again that, you know, take possession of your private keys and manage it for you for convenience as much in the movie you're describing. But I think that that's a solution that at the end of the day isn't going to be the one that people pick up. I think that it's just going to get really, really easy to own your own Bitcoin and to own your own, you know, tokens and whatever, whatever type of cryptocurrency. The fact that there is no centralized store of decryption keys means that something like what you're describing really can't exist. I mean, like if there's like a backdoor in the cryptography and, you know, like it it is able to bypass all of the, you know, uh, public key security, then yeah, that's the type of situation that you'd be talking about. Or more, I mean, you know, more likely if a centralized entity creates a system where the centralized entity is the entity that's in control. That's more what I was thinking of. And that's not like far off. IBM is wants to do this adept thing, which is a blockchain that somehow controls or integrates with the Internet of Things. And, you know, that is going to be a centralized thing. A lot of the proposals for ID systems and, you know, other things, those are all centralized systems. So, yeah, absolutely. It matters who has the power. Not every blockchain that's being proposed or talked about or designed now is a decentralized peer-to-peer thing. There certainly are centralized ones. So this is a fear that's not like completely off base. I remember talking to Charles Hoskinson maybe two years ago at this point about how one of his biggest concerns was that like a Google or a Microsoft was going to create their own blockchain and then onboard people through their channels as pretty much you're concerned about uh, here. Then they go to uh, Washington and say, hey, we have identity built into our blockchain. So people, you know, necessarily have their identity. So that means that it's really easy for you to work with us for tax reasons. And it's really easy for, you know, them to pay their taxes and all this other stuff. So you should ban every blockchain that doesn't have these features put in because now there's a solution that does. I think that that has been a very uh, prescient, frankly, statement um, because, yeah, you know, it seems like that's definitely a way that cryptocurrency technology could find itself suddenly uh, shackled to the limitations of what one company you know wants it to be. If they create a product and then put it out there, market it aggressively and get bigger uh, penetration than Bitcoin has, then it's not even a hard mm-hmm. argument. At an even more basic level that doesn't involve IDs or Internet of Things or anything like that, Citibank just tested out blockchain technology with their banking system. And of course, they contr- <laughs> they're going to be in control of those chains. So like imagine combining the tracking capabilities of blockchains and uh, the record keeping abilities of of them with the banking system, with the worst elements of the banking system, all the top down power and control. It's pretty much something that to me feels very dystopian. (laughs) 
I, I think that you're not far off there, but the thing that would have to change, and I think that this is a, a core point, is who holds the private keys? Because again, and even if City launches their own type of token or their own blockchain or whatever, you know, they might control all of the nodes, all of the all of the miners, miner equivalents basically within their network. But it would be a very different matter if they uh, if they also controlled all of the private keys. If that was the case, then yes, you're correct. They could basically completely replicate the existing banking system because they would have the ability to do pull transactions and it would be convenient for users. But again, it fundamentally essentially discards some of the better reasons why you actually want to use blockchain systems versus that. But again, some people look at it like that. Some people look at Bitcoin and they say, oh, this is a way that I can make transactions for, you know, 30% cheaper than I'm doing right now. Or, you know, like the banks look at it and say, okay, well, you know, this is a way that we can reduce internal costs when we're doing transfers between different units and reckoning and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, like, to a large degree, the people who are shaping what we're going to see in the future with blockchains have very different agendas, not just from us, but from each other, too. And they're not all working towards the same ends either. So it's not like there's like they, them, those who are plotting to control us and they're all on the same page. There's infighting even among those who want want more control over everybody else. Just like we were talking about evolution and arms races, there's always going to be technological solutions. Like when technology is used for, quote, evil purposes or to oppress, to control, to to harm, to hurt. There's also technological solutions on the other side of that that can be used to free and to help and to liberate. That definitely gives me hope. You know, technology is always sort of an arms race like that. As long as there are people who want to be free, <laughs> those solutions are going to pop up and exist at, alongside the, the big bad internet <laughs> and those ones. So how long you think until we see the first public, right? The first one that you can actually download a wallet to and start to use it, whether or not they're controlling your private keys. When do you think we'll see the first public one of those from a bank or a major corporation? I think in the next two years, probably some major one, you know, whether it's one of the big banks or Amazon or Google or even Apple. <laughs> not that I know that they're doing that or anything, but IBM is definitely working on their Internet of Things. So yeah, it's, it's a matter of time and it's happening really fast. And thinking about these philosophical concepts in advance of it actually happening can be helpful because then we don't have to feel so scared or so unprepared for it when it eventually inevitably does happen. I'd even be more aggressive than that. I would say that probably in the next year, we're probably going to see something because again, there's been so much, we've seen such a shift, right? There was just this period of time where banks were like, what the heck? Why would we want? We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to know about it. And they might have been privately looking at it, but publicly, it was very much not the case. And recently, you know, we've seen Blythe Masters jump from JPM. We've seen a lot of these fintech startups that are effectively, you know, bank startups uh, or bank units that have just gotten into this technology in one, for uh, one reason or another, mostly to experiment. But yeah, I mean, it seems obvious that it's just a matter of time before we see one of these things become available to consumers. And that'll be real interesting to see playing it out. Let's assume that happens. One of these comes out, it's successful. What do we do? I mean, like, what is the what is the play? Does that mean that Bitcoin suddenly has competition that makes it so it makes sense for it to be the decentralized, you know, really like free, nobody controls this option? Because now there's this comparison. Oh, you could pick Bitcoin as the free cryptocurrency or, you know, city coin as the bank currency. They're both cryptocurrency, but this one's free and this one goes through a bank. Is that a differentiating factor that might be useful? The way that they will get users is by being super convenient. 
<laughs> you know, like Facebook or Google gets users, you know, by offering stuff for free and not telling people that they're the product <laughs> and uh, making it really easy and convenient to join. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the way to what do you do when these things come out? Well, just look into it and decide, have a really heartfelt conversation with yourself about whether you want to avail yourself of those services. Is the trade-off between convenience and perhaps privacy or security worth it for you? And if it's not, use an alternative or don't use anything at all. I mean, Adam, you and Andreas actually also don't use Facebook. And that's interesting. I, I don't know if it's like an ideological choice for you because of privacy concerns or what have you. Or if it's just you just don't like it. <laughs> but there are people who choose not to use Facebook, even though it is so prevalent and so popular and the second biggest site on the Internet and there's billions of accounts. Alternatives are going to be out there, even if they're scant and hard to come by. And it's just about having awareness of what you're getting into <laughs> as far as using any of these technologies, signing up for them. I guess another way to look at it, too, would be that if they are effectively going to mainstream the technology, well, then that actually means that cryptocurrency is going to be getting to a whole bunch of people who previously had no concept of cryptocurrency and no understanding of why it's useful. So the fact that, again, a bank switches to it, the fact that a product like that gets rolled out in a major way is just like you know government attention, whether negative or positive, to a large degree an endorsement, because otherwise it wouldn't be worth their time, and they certainly wouldn't go out of their way to market it to users. So it seems like, again, you know, Part of this norming process is these attacks, basically, on the core of what cryptocurrency began as, and these attempts to take it and utilize it in ways, take the, the core technology and the ideas, and utilize it in ways that are beneficial to other types of environments, but that kind of at their core discard some of the core benefits that are really in there because they don't want those. They just want the efficiency benefits, the innovation. Oh, man. They, they got no, no interest in that whatsoever, but the efficiency, mm -hmm. well, that's something we could do something yeah, with. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's going to appeal to a lot of people, just like Google, Facebook, Apple, <laughs> Amazon, those things do. Well, we'll see. It's always a trade-off between convenience and uh, privacy or security. It's very inconvenient to be private and off the grid in this type of world, and it's too inconvenient for some people, <laughs> for most people. Hey folks, at Tokenly, our motto is limitless tokens for a tokenless world. As such, a big part of the mission in these early days is to help you see how tokens are not just useful, but actually ready to use if we can only connect the dots. Today we're talking about another early user of our token vending machine systems, the blockchain-enabled collectible card game, Spells of Genesis. Longtime listeners will be familiar with TCA, or Token Controlled Access. For those who have never heard of this concept before, basically when you're using a website or app built with TCA, you'll have access to different areas, be able to fill a different role, or exercise different permissions or powers based entirely on what tokens you possess. Spells of Genesis has taken this concept and applied it to ownership of collectible cards usable in their online game. They've rented seven swap bots so far from Tokenly, stocked each one with a particular token that represents a particular card in-game, and are selling them for Bitcoin, XCP, and other counterparty-based tokens. Token-controlled access and collectible card games have always seemed like a great fit to me, but the Spells of Genesis guys are making it happen, and frankly, we've been floored by the amount of interest in these cards so far. It might not seem like a lot, but in this first week they've been selling more than 20 orders on many days, with many single orders of 3 or more of a given card, at prices ranging from $10 to $25 per card. 
and they're just getting started. This is all a precursor to their crowd sale of BitCrystals, an in-game token built on Bitcoin that'll act as the internal liquidity for their game's ecosystem towards the end of July. To learn more about Spells of Genesis, visit SpellsOfGenesis.com. And if you've got an idea or project that you think might be a fit for tokens or made easier by tokenly tools, join me on Google Hangouts Saturday the 25th of July at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for an inside look at the project and an opportunity to get real-time answers to your questions. To RSVP or learn more, visit our ideas blog at tokenly.com. And of course, you can always reach us at team at tokenly.com. On an unrelated note, the magic word for episode 232 is Skynet. That's S-K-Y-N-E-T. Skynet. You've got until the 28th of July to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Block Verify CEO Pablo Tanasuk for a conversation about ameliorating real-life counterfeit and stolen products using a blockchain. Pablo, how are you? Thank you, Adam. Thank you for introduction. I'm here in London. Let's talk Bitcoin and let's talk about preventing counterfeit products. <laughs> we like to start kind of at the basic value proposition of what you're doing. What's the problem with supply chains that you're aiming to fix with Block Verify, and why is that the most important thing for you to be spending your time on right now when there's so much opportunity around? We worked in the financial arena for quite some time, and we realized that there are many applications that we can do outside of finance. So Bitcoin and Bitcoin blockchain is well suited for something else. So it can be used for as a digital notary. It can be used for various signatures and digital timestamping as well as a proof of existence. So because one of our team members, he worked quite long time in supply chain management, we realized that there is a bigger problem within the supply chain and specifically within medical supply chain, such as pharmaceuticals, as well as luxury items and diamonds. Okay, so are you using the Bitcoin blockchain to do this or are you using a separate blockchain? We are using a separate blockchain and we are fingerprinting our blockchain into Bitcoin ledger. Okay, so this sounds like uh, a little bit like how um, Factum does it, where they essentially take a digest of stuff that they're doing on their own blockchain and then embed that as kind of a checkpoint into the Bitcoin blockchain. Yes and no. So I'm advisor at Factum as well. So we might be using Factum protocol in the future. But Factum is just a layer between Bitcoin and other systems. That's what it will be used for. And our system kind of works on top of that. So we basically interacting with um, social agents within the supply chain network. That's how it works. And we're building not only the layer between the um, supply chain management system, but we are kind of changing how the supply chain system works in itself. So how does the supply system work now? And let's, let's start from there. What, what's the actual problem within the supply chain system? You, you know, we talked about fraud a little bit and we talked about counterfeit products, but where does that actually, where, where is that problem occurring? Well, yeah, so there are many problems at the moment. Basically, the biggest problem if you're talking about pharmaceuticals is that large amount of um, drugs is becoming counterfeit, especially in African countries as well as some European or South American countries. However, this problem is quite big in the US as well. So when we're talking about specific drugs, let's say in Africa, up to 30% of all drugs in circulation is counterfeit. And when we talk about malaria drugs, it's probably up to 50% in certain regions. So you can see that these kind of numbers are quite high. The problem is that at the moment, there is no way you can validate if a particular medicine is genuine or it's fake or it's diverted good. So there is no, um, let's say, serialization 
at the moment. And it's been introduced. So pharma industry is looking to introduce serialization. Depending on the country, it's going to start from the next year in Europe and then certain countries in Asia and then US in 2018, 2019. So they're looking into this and the kind of how they see to solve this problem is basically introducing the serial numbers. However, the problem with serial numbers is that most of them are consecutive, even though if they're not consecutive, the cryptography behind those numbers, it's quite weak and you can't really make sure that there is no duplicate of such a number. Duplicate question is not really kind of solved with a simple serialization technique. We looked at it and we thought, why don't we use a Bitcoin blockchain? Why don't we use, let's say, blockchain to combat counterfeiting uh, drugs and gray market and maybe saving not only hundreds of thousands of pounds and dollars, US dollars, but also saving many lives. The problem is also when the new standardization standards are going to be introduced that most of the servers, they will be centralized servers. It's kind of difficult to expand it and create a global solution. Also, those um, central servers, they'll become a center of malicious attack in the future. So how it works in the moment, let's say criminals are trying to kind of copy those numbers one by one. However, in the future, when we will have serialization started in place, and they would obviously attack servers rather than go after kind of copying the individual numbers. And we will need a solution which would be able to withstand those attacks on a universal scale, on a global scale. And we believe that blockchain is one of the solutions which can prevent that from happening. What you said there was that the problem with serial numbers right now, not using a blockchain type solution, is that they're fairly easy for somebody who's creating a counterfeit product to create something that looks and acts quite like a legitimate serial number because they are kind of predictable. And so you can just kind of pick one out of the air that's going to fit the, the constraints of whatever, you know, is creating the number and it'll look plausible within the system. And there's no real way to check to make sure that that product is actually the one that's supposed to have the serial number. How does adding a blockchain change that? You can view it as, as a Bitcoin wallet. So let's say we have supply chain system, block verified supply chain system, and you have transaction happening within the system. So let's say a producer, distributor, and customers, all of them have, let's say, virtual wallets. And those virtual wallets, they can hold data about certain transactions. And basically, they also have private keys to sign those transactions. There are tokens which are moving between those wallets. So let's say producer has issued a certain number of tokens. They got printed as a public keys on as a serial numbers on pharma products. And as they go on the supply chain, every distributor, every pharmacy signs them with their own private key. So we know when certain distributor receives the good, we know when the pharmacy has received the goods, and we know when the consumer is actually activating the goods. It works at the moment in the form of QR codes. So we have QR codes printed on the packaging, and then we have special application which allows producers and then distributors, pharmacies, and individual clients to take picture of it and scan it into their wallet, basically sign it with their private key so it moves along the supply chain. That's how it works on our system. So it gets recorded onto our um, blockchain-based system, and then we hash it into Bitcoin protocol using Factum or um, similar protocols that we are currently developing ourselves. 
what I heard you describe to me there is something that sounds very similar to how like a FedEx or a UPS kind of handles tracking packages as they go through their system. Because again, to them, it's very important that the same package get to the right place. And so they have to track it, not just on kind of, yeah, so it's, it sounds like it's very similar to that. So one of the questions with those systems is who actually is doing the, the signing and the handing off? So I've purchased this supply. When I receive it in, am I the one that's, that's scanning that and uh, then essentially noting that this has arrived with me or is it done by the person who gives it to me when they do the handoff? Well, it's actually works the same Bitcoin. So basically the person who is giving it to you has to sign the transaction and then you just receive it in your wallet. That's how it works at the moment. Ah, great. Terrific. That sounds very interesting. What type of, you, you mentioned that you are using tokens to represent these specific things. And you mentioned you might be creating your own protocol. Um, where, what are you using now and what are, you, what, what are you looking for in a protocol if you might wind up creating one? We're creating our own protocol as well as we're looking into um, existing solutions. And there are quite a few interesting ones. For example, one of the most interesting is called Credits. It's a um, European-based startup creating what they call a cross-chain. So it's not a really a side-chain, but a cross-chain. And you can have very substantial number of uh, transactions per second. And that's actually what we need for our pharma solution. In um, luxury industry or in, in diamond industry, number of transactions per second is not as important. However, when we talk about pharmaceuticals, it's incredibly important to have substantial amounts of data to go through our system. At the moment, they tested and they can do more than 2,000 transactions per second. Interesting. So, and this is still an on-blockchain solution that you're operating. You're not doing this just with a standard database and then feeding that in a later point. No, not at all. Even though we, depending on regulations, we might have to do it. So the problem is not the uh, blockchain protocol as such, but certain regulations have been introduced in particular countries which talk about data ownership, which talk about data protection data privacy. So those three issues can really kind of create some problems for our system in certain regions, but we are looking into it and we believe that legislation has to change and it would definitely allow systems like ours to exist in the future. Even though in certain jurisdictions we can operate right now, it's not a problem of kind of um, having a central database which is controlled by um, certain governmental bodies and then kind of having the ultimate control over the data. At the moment, we see problems which are not so much technical as um, legal problems in certain jurisdictions. So technical problems are solvable. And I believe that when we talk about systems, if it's a supply system or any other system, it's not only computers, but it's also a social component. It's also people who interact with the system. It's also legal framework which surrounds the system and we actually looking beyond the simple technicalities of a blockchain and into kind of social aspect, how people are going to use our product, what is the most convenient way for them to do it, and let's say, what are the legal grounds for using our system? That's quite important as well. And we believe then only when we kind of have a kind of a scope of those different topics and we can create a successful information systems for supply chain management. Where are you with the project right now? I know that you guys did a, a pilot program somewhat recently, and that was essentially your proof of concept. But how far out are you from a real product that, you know, just somebody who would like to, you know, engage supply management? Are you just working with like select customers at this point? 
or are you looking to more broadly kind of open up? Well, at the moment, we are working with the two pharmaceutical companies, which are Swiss-based companies. We conducted a successful pilot with one of them. And at the moment, we are working on customized solution for a second one. However, what we also do, we are creating a universal APIs, which would be distributed and can be used by other supply chain management systems. So we are going to give them ability and give them all the advantages of blockchain-based solution. And if they want to integrate our APIs, we can do certain things even for companies who at the moment are already kind of dealing with the pharmaceutical companies and managing their supply chain network. What kind of cost are you expecting to be offering to your customers for providing this type of service? And you said that you're using QR codes. Now, I saw in some of your documentation that you're looking at also RFID or a couple of other technologies that are a little bit more advanced than QR codes, but they're still pretty small and cheap. So I'm curious, you know, what type of cost does something like this add to a product? QR codes is cheapest solutions that we can introduce at the moment. RFID is a bit more expensive. However, it's not only about expense of a particular solution, even though uh, we talk about pharmaceuticals and when we talk about individual items, individual packaging, NFC technology or FID technology can be quite expensive in per item. However, the biggest problem is customer adoption. Customers kind of got used to scanning QR codes and downloading data. However, near-field communication is not as popular, specifically in certain regions. Even though we believe that the future is definitely contactless and definitely more and more people would be using those kind of technologies on their daily basis. However, at the moment, QR code is the most obvious way to go. People really like it. They really like to kind of be able to see that it's there. And there is also um, a code which you can enter manually if you want. However, definitely in the future, as well as with more expensive products like luxury items, we are testing different types of near-field communication uh, devices. So one of the things that strikes me about your project is that on the one hand, you've got this fraud prevention side and supply chain management, but on the other side, kind of at the other end of that, you've got this idea of consumer warranties. And one of the issues that has always been irritating to me is that consumer warranties are non-transferable, even though they have a set period of time they're supposed to last for. And this is in large part because of this supply chain problem, I believe, that, uh, that you guys have identified. So it strikes me that kind of the last step of your process, when a product actually gets to a consumer, if it's something you know like technology that has a warranty under most circumstances, that could actually be like the reason why a customer does the final commit is because taking possession of it essentially means that they now own the warranty until they no longer do. Uh, yes, absolutely right. So uh, actually, we have a number of companies who contacted us and they're quite interested in transfer of ownership in the secondary market. So let's say luxury items which get transferred, which get sold. Those companies are really looking into it because there is a warranty attached to every single product. Let's say it's a bag, um, luxury bag, and then they really want to make sure who owns it and who did what with a particular item and how it got sold in order to maintain a warranty and in order to kind of make sure that it's not been tampered with. At the moment, we are creating a solution. It will be a special near-field-based solution for bags. And we will be actually announcing it quite soon. What is really interesting is that when customer scans the item, it activates the warranty. Not only it activates the warranty, 
but also you receive this item in your virtual wallet, Block Verify virtual wallet. We hope to work with various suppliers, with various producers in the future. And that means that you can have luxury items, you can have your own cars, you can have your different, let's say, items um, stored on this wallet. Basically, what we do, we create a link between physical and digital world. In a way, we can make sure that all those goods that you own in a digital world, they have a true representation in the virtual world as well. And then actually has quite important applications, not only for virtual worlds, but for asset management and for many other applications. At the moment, we are talking to a bank, which is looking into it, how we can use those kind of systems for asset management, for high net worth individuals, when you're actually able to trace someone's assets just using block verify system. It's quite important because sometimes when you have to kind of go through all the items that a certain person has in his own possession, it take maybe days, if not months. And then when you have a system which which is a truly true representation of a physical world, then it really simplifies things. And many banks with their private arms are looking into our systems and in order to kind of have this ability for their clients. Even so, we completely understand that from the legal perspective, it might be some years away, but we want to start testing it right now. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I mean, like you said, most of the problems that you're running into on that side don't really aren't really about technology. It's more about permission. It seems like you're not the only person, you're not the only company that's targeting banks and seeing them as kind of like a really obvious big adopter for uh, blockchain technologies because they have all of these sort of concentrated inefficiencies compared to the new types of systems we have available. So do you think that that is a market you will get traction in? Because the permission issues seem to kind of outweigh the technological issues in a lot of senses. That's why part of our strategies, we are starting with anti-counterfeit technology, with the markets which are not highly regulated because supply chain management systems that have certain standards, but then they're not as highly regulated as financial systems. And that would allow us to test our system and kind of be ready for the financial world when the legal part is in place. <laughs> that makes sense. One of the interesting things that you said a couple of minutes ago was, uh, you know, when somebody buys or sells something, you couldn't steal an asset and legally own it, or at least legitimately own it. I'm not sure what the legal ramifications would be. Because the person who you stole it from would not have assigned that to you and to your private key, and it would still be connected to their private key. So if it's still connected to their private key, but you possess it, then it means you didn't take possession of it through normal channels, which means that you don't actually own it, which means the person who last held it technically might own it. I mean, is that kind of the... Because it seems like it's not just, again, like it goes the other way too. If you keep this tracking going and it's just who owns it and they're registered the blockchain and that can be looked up fairly easily and you can verify it by demonstrating private keys. And it seems like this is this really is an entire supply chain, even post-ownership solution. Yes, Adam, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's not as important with uh, pharmaceuticals. With pharmaceuticals, what you want to make sure is a final customer is getting a genuine product, which is not counterfeit, which is not a diverted good, which is not a stolen merchandise. However, what is important for, let's say, diamonds is actually to trace the ownership of a particular diamond through the supply chain and then for sale as well. So when you buy a diamond and then many diamonds, they 
get sold numerous times, like multiple times. And it's really important to kind of be able to trace them and be able to identify who is really in the possession from the legal perspective. That's very important. And we are planning to use with um, governmental agencies. So we might help them to prevent, let's say, money laundering because diamonds are being used as a tool for money laundering around the world. So not actually Bitcoin, but diamonds is an asset actually which has been used for um, money laundering. And with our technology, we can really help to stop that. It's important because we can use spectrography to scan a particular diamond and all diamonds above a certain size are getting scanned anyway, and we can hash this information into our blockchain as well as fingerprint into the Bitcoin ledger, public ledger, and then obviously record every single transfer of ownership of that particular diamond. And that makes the system really robust, and we can make sure that the diamonds, as they go within the supply chain, as well as in the secondary markets, we can really maintain, let's say, the information about the ownership, information about transfer of ownership, and we can make sure not only that blood diamonds are not entering the supply chain, but also that if certain diamonds are getting stolen, we can identify what kind of diamonds are they, where they've been stolen, and we can prevent money laundering on an international scale as well. But that sounds quite ambitious, and at the moment we are looking into a smaller scale project like pharmaceuticals, as well as helping relatively large companies to enhance their supply chain capabilities. When we talk about poor quality of products and destroying the reputation of the brand or um, something like that, we believe that it poses other dangers as well. So at the moment, slavery is a big humanitarian problem. And counterfeit products, actually, are usually products which are made by current slaves. So there are more than 30 million slaves in existence today around the world. And a large percentage of that number are the people who can be traced to the counterfeit industry. And we believe that if it helped to stop that, that would make a big call internationally as well. So it's going to be really good for us. It's going to be good for a Bitcoin image as well. So Bitcoin started with kind of selling drugs on a market many years ago people used it that way and now there is a real potential for bitcoin have much better applications not only within the financial world but outside the financial world basically preventing slavery preventing deaths for example malaria medicine has been counterfeit widely in africa and many people die just because they're not getting proper treatment or they getting a treatment and this medicine is not genuine or is it's been falsified and also, we believe that we'll be able to kind of influence those industries, and we then we'll be looking into financial applications as well. So, what's next for the project? Um, you know, we've talked about where you are. We've talked about where you're going. What's on kind of the immediate, you know, next six months horizon? Should we should we be expecting to see Block Verify start popping up with you know some of these projects becoming a little bit more public, or are you guys still really in kind of a, we're, we're making sure that this works and, you know, doing quiet tests right now? Yes, actually, within a couple of months time, we will probably go public. We will provide our application for final consumers, even though there are not going to be too many items to scan at the moment, but we are working with a substantial number of potential clients who are testing our technology and who would probably be using it within the next six months time. So it's 
not only making the supply chains transparent, but it's also making sure that the transfer of ownership occurs and it's recorded on a blockchain in a proper way and that the consumer knows what he owns at any point in time. And yeah, that's what we are going to do. And um, there will be a number of projects coming up, some of them quite interesting. Even talking to a clearinghouse to provide them with a solution to put serialization number on invoices. So it's something that we are looking to at the moment as well. And it's a big industry when you talk about clearing, about factoring. The problem is that you can't really make sure who owns an invoice at any point in time. And that's what we are going to change as well. Well, Pavlo, thank you very much for uh, talking to us about this. So people are interested in learning more about your project, if they're interested in getting involved. Do you guys have an open source side? Do you um, Are you looking for investors or developers or hiring at any point? Yes, actually, we will have open source APIs um, quite soon, and it will be on our website, blockverify.io. At the moment, we are talking with a number of uh, venture capital companies. We are looking to raise our next round of investment. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Pablo, Stephanie, and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.